0: DNA expression controls nearly if not everything that we are. It informs how we look, the diseases that we're susceptible to, and shapes our personality. It even sets the bar for our risk of developing anxiety and depression. In recent years, the world has been hyper-focused on discussing depression and determined to fight it to help people lead enjoyable lives. Females are twice as likely as males to develop these symptoms and we have yet to find why. Naturally, sociocultural factors have been considered as the root cause of this difference across sexes, but one must wonder if there are underlying biological factors at play. The primary biological suspect of female vulnerability to depression is the drastic hormone fluctuation that goes hand in hand with the menstrual cycle. Throughout the process, estrogen and progesterone levels change, opening a line of questioning about how sex hormone levels can mediate mental health and make menstruators more susceptible to anxiety and depression. In today's episode, we speak with Dr. Maria Kundikovich, assistant professor in neuroscience at Fordham University, where she studies the epigenetic basis of behavior. Her work focuses on the hormonal and environmental factors that mediate sex differences in depression, anxiety, and drug abuse. Her findings can open the door to development of new diagnostic tools and new preventative and therapeutic approaches addressing female mental health. She offers a multidisciplinary insight that gets right
1: down to the question that keeps all of us scientists up at night. How does it work? In this episode, we sit down and discuss the exciting projects that Dr. Kundakovich is heading. We'll also talk about the importance of keeping females in mind when designing scientific studies. You're listening to Neuron Air, brought to you by the next generation of neuroscientists at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. We are your co-hosts for today. I am Claire Ward, a graduate student in neuroscience. And I am Tori Lavallo, a neuroscience research trainee. Hi, Dr. Kundakovich. I'm Claire. And I'm Tori. Thanks
0: so much for joining us today. I'm really eager to get in, we're both really eager to get into the sex differences in the brain. Mm-hmm. So let's start by having you introduce yourself, please, and then offer mm-hmm. us a brief synopsis, an introduction of sorts to your work.
2: Uh, sure. So just to introduce myself, my name is Maria Kundakovic, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at Fordham University. Uh, My lab actually uh, focuses on the epigenetic basis of behavior and psychiatric disorders. And we particularly are focusing on hormonal and environmental factors that are driving sex differences in um, anxiety disorders, depression and drug abuse.
1: Okay, so epigenetics and neuroscience is a creative combo. Uh, We're hoping that you could explain to us a little more specifically about epigenetics and how you apply epigenetics to your work.
2: I'd like to actually dissect this. uh, First of all, to just maybe explain what epigenetic regulation is, like I think. So we are interesting to understand this epigenetic regulation in brain cells, in particularly in, in, in neurons, right? And this is important because in each cell in our body, Um, DNA is packaged in this very specialized structure that is called chromatin, right? So we have the DNA that is wrapped around these histone proteins. And this is important because DNA in each cell is like around uh, six and a half feet, And you have to basically package it into this very like small nucleus that is not even visible to our eye, right? Um, And so it's packaged around these histone proteins, um, and then there is like a higher order organization. And this is not important only for packaging, but it is important because um, this can also regulate expression of our genes, right? So you need the genes to be, or regulatory uh, uh, parts of the genes to be open for some factors to bind and for genes to be expressed.
0: So this is the field of epigenetics. We have a lot of DNA, but which genes are expressed at what time? you're looking specifically at chromatin dynamics in neurons. What's so special about neurons?
2: Well, in the other cell types, uh, you know, typically like after differentiation, um, the chromatin really becomes quite stable because we know which cells genes should be expressed and which genes should not, Uh, neurons are very dynamic in terms of gene expression. And this is important because like, you know, um, neurons have to be able to respond to both internal and external environment, and which at the end allows us to, you know, to respond to our environment, to learn, like, you know, to have the reaction to our environment, right? Um, And for this, you have to have this plasticity of this chromatin, so you can, you have to be able to repackage the DNA uh, to open certain genes at certain point and close others right you know um so and this is you know, important for the normal uh, function of neurons. But sometimes like, you know, uh, this can also lead to some problems, right? If, if there are like, you know, changes in response to, let's say, stress or in response to hormonal changes that I will tell you a little bit more in a moment. Um, we believe that like, you know, these some changes that are happening might actually lead to changes in brain structure and behavior that might actually contribute to psychopathology, for instance, right? And this is something that we want to understand, right? We want to understand how, for instance, hormonal changes, particularly in females or how early life stress, for instance, can lead to changes in this DNA packaging, right? And how this can change in expression and as I said, contribute to this um, you know, psychiatric disorder.
1: Oh, okay. So hormonal changes could lead to changes in the epigenome. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about your research?
2: Um, one of the project, like the project is actually the most currently most important, we just actually got the big NIH uh, grant for this, uh, is actually trying to understand how hormonal changes in the females, which are basically periodic changes. We all know that during the reproductive um, period, women actually uh, have these uh, changes across this menstrual cycle in humans or in rodents it's called the astro cycle uh, where there is like you know rising in estrogen and falling in estrogen rising in progesterone falling in progesterone this is really absolutely necessary for normal reproductive function uh, however we do know that you know these changes are also associated with plasticity in the brain for instance there are changes um, in the dendritic spine density in rodents but there are also changes in gray matter in, in in human females and while this plasticity in a way you know can be something that someone can you know consider as something Positive, there is a complexity to the female brain, and I like to actually just understand, uh, you know, the physiology of that. On the other hand, we do know from, uh, you know, epidemiological evidence that these hormonal changes can actually increase female risk for anxiety and depression, and this is particularly important because we know that uh, women are, um, you know, at twice higher risk for these disorders um, than men are, right? And while this epidemiological uh, piece of evidence is probably one of the strongest pieces of evidence that we have in epidemiology, very little is actually being done to understand the biological basis of this. And I think this is like a really missed opportunity. Um, I think one of the biggest reasons for this is that, uh, you know, a lot of particularly um, preclinical studies were done in male animals only. Um, So, you know, like if you study, uh, you know, depression or anxiety related uh, phenomena in male animals only, you are in a way addressing only the threat of population. Um, So I think with expanding on on these studies and like doing studies in specifically on the female brain and trying to understand how these hormonal changes um, are affecting, uh, you know, the things such as like, let's say chromatin in this case, we are interested in in this particular molecular mechanism. Um, We can actually start thinking about, you know, some kind of sex specific drug targets and like how we could, you know, specifically target, like, you know, um, some more female specific phenomena that are important for depression and anxiety. So this this has been uh, the major project, like the project that we um, have, I would say now developed Uh, um, you know, like most strongly in a way. And we published recently um, uh, in a manuscript in Nature Communications that was in 2019, where we described for the first time um, that there are changes in the chromatin organization across the astro cycle. And that these changes are of the same magnitude uh, that if you compare for instance, females and males, right? And I think this is actually the starting point for something that we want to do in the future and to try to better understand this regulation, to better understand the regulators uh, of, of these changes in order to actually start thinking about some, as I said, sex-specific um, treatments.
0: Oh, congratulations on your paper. That's awesome. You mentioned earlier, you also look into the effects of early life stress on depression. What do you have going on so far in that regard?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so um, we also, um, have a project that is dealing with early life stress um, and the, you know, like how the early life stress can increase risk for both anxiety and depression and uh, cocaine addiction in particular. Um, and this is actually, you know, like another project that is still not as much developed, but is we are really have some really interesting data. I'm hopeful uh, maybe in a you know, couple of months, we will have the first manuscript out. Um, and again, we, we are having the same, kind of a a team there, right? And we are seeing, again, sex-specific effects. We know that estrogen is involved in Uh, brain reward system and that, you know, like the effects of drug abuse are different in males and females. Um, But again, we don't really understand much about the molecular uh, mechanism behind this. And we started with this idea that there are chromatin changes in the ventral hippocampus, which is important for emotion regulation that we previously showed. But now we are showing, um, uh, you know, this at the level of brain reward system with relation to cocaine um, exposure and something. So we have a lot of interesting um, new, but if you're thinking about the of research there are these two big lines of research one is uh, so, you know like more related to anxiety, depression, one to more to drug abuse, I say.
1: Those are really cool projects you have going on. Um, we're interested in how you study this. Could you tell us a little bit more about your techniques?
2: So this is how we do it, right? Okay, as I said, like we we are focusing on certain brain region because we know it's very important for emotion regulation. It's called the ventral hippocampus. And in mice, it's been shown previously that if you do the lesion to this uh, brain region or you actually optogenetically activate neurons in this area, that you can change these anxiety-related behaviors. And this was the main reason why we chose to work on that particular brain area. Right. So then what we do, we, we actually sort and we take only neuronal nuclei, right? Because as I said previously, like, you know, the epigenome, like, you know, this, you know, chromatin is actually cell type specific. So we want to actually increase the resolution of our, um, um, you know, like I so we do the flow cytometry, like a fluorescent based assay where we can actually sort and purify the neuronal nuclei. So, and then we use this, this uh, uh, you know, method that is called a toxic that is based on the activity of the enzyme that is called transposase, which can then cut the DNA only if chromatin is open. So, if the chromatin is, is closed, the DNA is inaccessible, this enzyme cannot cut the DNA right? But if it, the chromatin is open, the, the enzyme will bind. And it's actually specifically engineered that once it binds, it can actually insert the sequencing adapter into DNA. So this actually allows you to select and, and reach for that, uh, open chromatin or DNA, you know, uh, uh, that is connected to this open chromatin. So that then you can do the, um, you know, amplification using a PCR, and then you can do the next generation sequencing. So we are doing the genomic test, which means that we are not looking at specific genes, Uh, we are actually looking in within these neurons uh, that I said is ventral hippocampal neurons, we look uh, throughout the genome, right? Uh, so what we were basically, and we do that, like, you know, from the animals that have high estrogen, they're called priceless animals, from the a- uh, animals that have low estrogen, uh, which is called the uh, diestrus. And then we do it from the animals that are male animals, just age-matched, right? Mm-hmm. So what we were able to, f- to find is actually that globally, there is a- this reorganization of chromatin. And this is really significant. We we absolutely didn't expect this this degree of change. This is like around 30% Of of genome actually showed changes in chromatin organization. Okay? And what was really important here is that, like, you know, when we did some, you know, bioinformatics analysis, we were able to show that, you know, these changes are enriched within genes that are important for neuronal function. And uh, specifically also within some pathway, such as serotonergic pathway that I actually just mentioned previously, that we know is actually changing uh, across the cycle, right? So this is actually gave us for the first time, like, you know, some kind of a molecular basis of like, you know, how these changes in serotoner, ter- serotonergic transmission can be um, happening, right? You know, this is basically the underlying mechanism. So, so that was one of the most important um, findings that we had
0: you know, how did you get into this? Was it something that you studied previously in other labs and brought to your lab? I guess what I'm asking is, how did you decide to tackle these research questions about hormones and epigenetics and psychological disorders?
2: Yeah. So this is, uh, I think, an interesting question because, like, it's a little bit you know, complex question because sure, uh, you know, I've been informed uh, by what I studied previously, uh, but I do also want to say that in general, uh, uh, you know, this specific uh, interest in, in fluctuating hormones and anxiety, depression was uh, in a way also partially informed from my personal experience. And I think it's always an interesting story to tell uh, because, you know, people always think like, you know, how you start, you know, you know, being interested in, in something. So. Um, I when 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 I was in my early twenties, uh, you know, like um, I started having some, you know, um, I was I like to call it like a stronger PMS, and I think everyone knows what PMS is. It's like a premenstrual syndrome, right? And honestly, like around two thirds of women actually have some sort of like a premenstrual syndrome. Whether that's more physical, like bloating, like you know, breast tenderness. Uh, some women are more sensitive, like you know, they, they see emotional changes and stuff. And um, I think I was in the second uh, cohort of this. Like you know, I did you know feel like some kind of a uh, emotional changes, right? And, and and it was really interesting because it came, it would come suddenly, and then it would disappear every time I get my period. And it took me maybe a couple of months to understand what's going on. You know, I'm a scientist. And I was just trying to understand, you know, like, what? how can I relate to these changes? Because it was really like something quite interesting to me, like, and, and quite intriguing. Um, so when I realized that this is actually related to my period, then I did some kind of a research. And I realized that, like, you know, there's really this drop in, in sex hormone levels just before then. And I, was, I started thinking, like, you know, if I have this feeling, like, you know, I, how strong this is, for instance, in someone who has already who has some kind of a predisposition, you know, a genetic or some other factor that are contributing. Um, so this, this actual interest started like, you know, from my own personal experience where I felt the drop in sex hormones can really have like an effect on the emotional well-being in a way. And, and this never really never affected me uh, to the point where, uh, you know, I couldn't, you know, go through my day or something, but it was obvious. And, and like, I kind of had this, this, this thinking about like, you know, this is something that should be really understood, right? And the contribution to the uh, mental disorder should be understood. And it took then, uh, you know, and I, I was like joking with, with friends of mine, like, you know, I have to research this PMS, like, you know, I have to do that. Like, you know, but, uh, uh, you know, like it came to some point, like, you know, that I started also looking into literature and I realized that, like, you know, when people tell you um, that women are at twice over a risk uh, uh, compared to men, no one really says, rarely people actually explain that this is not throughout life. Right? That this is actually pretty much happening only during reproductive periods, right? So if you compared boys and girls, um their risk for depression and anxiety is pretty much the same right and they do develop depression anxiety maybe even nowadays even more than, than before um and then if you look postmenopausal women right when they there are these very stable low estrogen or progesterone levels um the risk between postmenopausal women and men of the similar age is actually also very similar right so we are really seeing this jump an increase in female risk um, just around the first manner when the you know girls get their first period when they, their hormones start fluctuating. And then this actually is quite stable, two times higher risk throughout the reproductive period. And then during the perimenopause, when you have really like even the bigger fluctuations, um, you actually then start seeing even higher risk, and further jump in females, right? Um, so this is actually something that when I looked at this evidence, I was just like, oh my God, like, you know, this is, this is like revelation for me.
0: Interesting. So you took this experience of having a stronger PMS, and in a way, turned studying how these fluctuations in hormones can lead to anxiety and depression into a whole career
1: amazing
2: when i was at columbia university i was actually teaching um, the psychopharmacology class and one lecture was on brain uh, sex in the brain and, and and i like like you know kind of realized that and i was like this has to be you know understood right so it took mm-hmm. it, you know it took me until i got my own lab to actually really study this right and, uh, but, you know, then the technical part and like molecular basis of this actually came from my previous um, experience because like, you know, throughout my, from the, my PhD, throughout like, you know, um, my final postdoc, actually, I was studying the, the, you know, epigenetics of psychiatric disorders. And I have to say that like, you know, um, I, I've i been in this, uh, uh, you know, like, um, in in this field from its inception, literally. uh, When I started my PhD in, in 2003, Um, there were literally five papers on your epigenetics i know for you guys it's probably very uh confusing even to hear that because you know everyone is now talking about epigenetics people talk about epigenetic inheritance across generation trauma inheritance and stuff and so nowadays people are accustomed to that um but this idea that this could be dynamic like like what we are seeing now like in mind this happens over like twenty. four or 48-hour period, like, you know, it's a couple of days that we see these huge changes in chromatin. These people would think you are insane.
1: So neuroepigenetics was really at its inception when you started out. You were also at the forefront when it comes to research in female animals, right? This is like...
2: A whole new field that basically we are now opening you know because people are still thinking about sex differences in general and not to mention all these like you know specific female specific dynamics because if you now also still gonna go and look into some really um high profile papers you will understand whenever there is like a first um piece of evidence showing that there are you know chromatin changes in response to neural activity this is primarily done in male brain only Right? So, this what we are now showing is not only that there are sex differences, but that there is like a female-specific dynamism, which I feel like, you know, it's really something that actually shows the complexity and something um, that should be embraced rather than kind of ignored.
1: Quick aside here, let's take a moment to talk about the recent NIH mandate for the use of both males and females in preclinical and basic research. In the early 1980s, there was increasing awareness about the lack of research in women's health, resulting in a push to include equal numbers of men and women in clinical studies that covered health issues that could affect both sexes. This is important because females may have different symptoms of disease, side effects to treatment, and overall risk than males. The standards were signed into law in the 1993 NIH Revitalization Act. The same standards of equal inclusion of sexes in clinical research was not extended to preclinical and basic science research until 2015 when the NIH formally mandated that sex as a biological variable is factored into research designs, analyses, and reporting as a condition for funding unless there is a strong justification for the use of just one sex.
2: Um, and you know, like this might not be very convenient, you know, for many people like, you know, when I talked with a, one th- colleague of mine, he was saying, what you're showing is inconvenient truth." You know what I mean? Because <laughs> sometimes, sometimes what we are showing is that if you are putting these two female groups together, for instance, what we are not typically doing, like we are studying uh, things across the cycle, and I do want to, you know, like, uh, uh, emphasize that we are studying this in mice, right? Um, and mice have something that is called estrocycle which is similar to to uh, human menstrual cycle, but uh, is actually shorter. It's only four to five days. But the hormonal profiles are very similar. Like you have high estrogen, low estrogen. You have high progesterone, etc. So we take these two extreme groups, which are actually mimicking the follicular phase in humans and luteal phase in in humans, and then we typically like you know compare them and then compare them to the the, the male brain. Uh, and I maybe should be also very um specific like you know we look into ventral hippocampus that we know that is uh, very important for emotion regulation and then we actually purify neurons because you know there are cell type specificity of the epigenome so you want to actually be as cell type specific as possible so when we isolate this neuron we actually uh, compare two female groups with males and, and again like you know sometimes we just know if you put together these two female groups you lose a lot like you know maybe um sometimes like, you know, you are not going to even be able something to claim the sex difference because like, you know, once you put together these two female groups, it's actually a lot of noise happening and like, you know, you know, things cannot be really distinguished then.
0: Hmm. So the male and female brain are actually dimorphic at the level of chromatin dynamics. And not only are there differences between males and females, but also between proestrous and diestrous females. Do these epigenetic changes translate to any changes at the structural level?
2: There is also one piece (laughs) of data that people are shocked when they see that. And this is like, you know, this phenomenon where you see that the dendritic spine density changes across the astrocyclo. So literally there is an increased dendritic spine density during the high estrogenic uh, you know, phase and then you know there is a reduction of the dendritic spine density uh, after this so and now when you start thinking about this okay so there is a structural change and then like you, you you find the human papers like you know where they're showing that there are changes in the gray matter across the menstrual cycle it's like you have to understand that this is important, you know what I mean? Uh and that we should think about that, particularly if we want to understand sex differences and why um there are some some changes. But regardless of this psychopathology, I, I think just understanding this in general is is, is super interesting and in important, and like you know, this should be studied and understood only from this, you know scientific point of view, I think it, it's quite interesting. And when you say how many individuals are menstruating, um, I was reading somewhere uh, where they said, like, you know, if women are constituting 50% of population, at least 50% of women are in the reproductive period, right? So it's a huge you know, percentage of population that, um, you know, like we should be talking about. And, and again, I do want to say that I do want to be inclusive. It's not only women, it's all menstruating individuals, basically, right?
1: So, hormone fluctuation can lead to increased risk for anxiety and depression. Uh, but not everyone who menstruates has the misfortune of being clinically depressed or having an anxiety disorder. What do you think helps turn this susceptibility into an actual disorder?
2: You know, hormonal fluctuation by itself, they are not sufficient to induce psychopathology, right? So they might be actually increasing the risk. They might actually lead to the vulnerability, uh, but I do believe you need another hit, whether that's going to be genetics or some environmental factors. So um, I think this is this is important to keep in mind. And sometimes when, when because what we study primarily is uh, this physiological model of, you know, changes across the astro cycle. Um, sometimes what we are seeing is actually might be sort of like what I like to call priming, uh, where there is there are some changes, like, you know, that, uh, for instance, like if I look at the chromatin changes that we are seeing across the astro cycle, um, some changes lead to changes in gene expression, as you would expect as a, some functional change. There are a lot of changes in chromatin that we are seeing that are not necessarily translate to changes in gene expression. And I do believe that there is something about that that I like to see as some sort of like a priming effect, that there is an increase in leaks risk. There is a, you know, molecular priming for something. So if you have another hit, that, that hit might actually uh, lead to some functional changes that can then contribute to phenotypic changes like, or psychopathology. Um, so that said, like, you know, uh, I see our astro cycle study as like, almost like a model of vulnerability rather than model of anxiety and depression, because the animals that we are studying are really you know, they're they just, you know, like they're they are normal animals, we didn't do anything to them, they're just showing this natural variation in, in, in anxiety levels, I would say. I do believe that looking at these interactions of other risk factors together with this will actually be um, critical in, in, in the future if we really want to um, understand the contribution of, of these hormonal changes to um, increase female risk in anxiety and depression.
0: In talking about the susceptibility of females to anxiety and depression, I wonder whether these vulnerabilities could be used to support ideas that menstruating individuals might not be suited for high-stress
1: positions. Uh-huh. I was wondering that, too. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I,
2: I'm i glad you asked that question because I, I feel that there is still kind of resistance to these ideas, maybe, that, like, you know, we are now trying to. And I'm not saying that I'm trying to push anything in particular because, like, you know, I am drawing the ideas for my, you know, preclinical work from clinical evidence. But I am glad that you asked because I feel... Um, that there were like, you know, um, previously, like, you know, there were some fears in like, you know, um, emphasizing, um, this, this, uh, uh, you know, like vulnerability to stress and like this, how these hormonal changes are affecting, like, you know, emotion regulation in women. There were some fears in, in the past that like, you know, we, this might, uh, uh, you know, affect the actual image of women and how, how much they are actually able to do the work, the serious work, right? I think we are way past that. Right. I think we really don't have to, uh, you know, even have this conversation whether women can, you know, uh, do in these high pressure situations, like, you know, they, whether they can be great leaders. We actually see that, like, you know, nowadays in the, uh, you know countries where the women are leaders leaders like you know the pandemic was actually managed in a better way like you know if you want to be honest about that we also have <laughs> seen women you know we also have seen women actually doing amazing job during you know their pregnancies and like you know these periods where there is really even more vulnerability so I actually uh, uh, reject even, like, you know, these ideas that, like, we should really, um, you know, like, have conversation about this. I think this is important uh, to understand that there are really, like, the women women might might have certain vulnerability, but also some strength uh, that actually uh, allow for overcoming these obstacles uh, and, like, being able to actually perform very highly regardless of, of the situation. What I think is important, because we are way past that, we now have to go back and like focus on these problems. Like, you know, that like, you know, so many, you know, women are actually afraid to talk about, because I think if you don't talk about, you know, like there was always being some shame associated with period. Right. I mean, always like, since you got your first period, you're like, you just don't talk about that. Like, you know, it's not like something that should be like, you know, um, women don't talk about, you know, pregnancy in general. And like, you know, there are many or or menopause. And like, I think considering that we have 50% of you know, population um, that is dealing with this, you know, like a female specific, like, you know, female unique experiences. I think really we should now embrace this and not try to hide this under the rug and like, you know, be like, you know, this is not something that affects us. We are cool. Like hormones are not important. I think it should be different. Like, you know, we are able to um, do all of this regardless of like, you know, some kind of difficulty that some women are experiencing. I I don't even want to say like, you know, when we think about, for instance, PMDD, right? There are only 5 to 8% women that, you know, really uh, have diagnosis and need to actually take, you know, some treatments for this, right? So um, I think like, you know, just, you know, like now we should really embrace this and trying to understand, you know, how these hormonal changes, how these things that are female unique can actually help us understand the psychopathology or brain disorders in women better and, and start to actually think, um, you know, how we can use this information to actually improve our treatments. But I really reject the idea that we should have this conversation, whether women are able to perform high level and high pressure, work under high pressure or not. Like, I think this is being confirmed.
1: I love that women might have some vulnerability, but also some strength. And yes, indeed, we've confirmed that women are able to perform at high levels under pressure. We can let dr kundakovich be our example of that yeah. <laughs> yeah. are there any
0: ideas that you want to impart on the next generation of neuroscientists
1: um
2: i, I actually teach uh, neuroscience at, at fordham university and um students do not believe it when i when i say that that you know like a majority of studies were done in medicine. They, i mean they are they are just asking us why like you know so and and it's really difficult to to explain to people that this this was even possible before right so it was int- interesting because during this pandemic now um i actually I- introduced the their presentations right so just to make things more dynamic because it's an online course like you know they would um you know like uh, do their own research find their own papers and you know? so we ended up of course uh with probably at least 80% of papers being done only in males. And they were shocked. Like, you know, I think it's one thing to actually hear that from me Right. And another thing is that, like, you know, you now see like 20 students that chose papers randomly. Right. I mean, like totally randomly. Not to mention that, like, you know, at the end, at least 50 percent, I would say we have actually more women in, in, in my neuroscience class than, than men. And, you know, like somehow it's like always ends up that, you know, it's mainly, you know. And then I, I really like when I hear from them something like, but this is unacceptable not to include like, you know, females or not to include both sexes. Like, you know, I, I kind of have the feeling that like, you know, I, I really did a lot as as, as, a, as a teacher. Right. I mean, not only for them in order teaching them, but like, you know, for the, as you said, like a bigger society, because I think until you understand, you know, like this that this is really an issue. Um, I don't think we can really do much about it, like, you know, because I think understanding of the, you know, of the bigger uh, bigger population understand is like, you know, I think this is what can also push the policies.
0: We've learned that females are at a two times greater risk than males for neuropsychiatric disorders, such as anxiety and depression and that this risk corresponds to the onset of the menstrual cycle. Dr. Kundakovich's lab is exploring the epigenetic phenomena that underlies this susceptibility of females to these disorders. Epigenetic regulation determines which genes get expressed and at what time through restructuring tightly wound DNA called chromatin. Neurons are a cell type that must quickly respond to the environment, and as such, they're constantly needing to restructure their chromatin in order to change their gene expression. Dr. Kundakovich's lab demonstrated how dynamic chromatin regulation is in neurons across the
1: estrous cycle, and these changes correspond with changes in behavior. But how do we see what's going on in our heads? It's hard enough to understand our own behavior, let alone understand our behavior at a molecular level. This is where the mouse model comes in. In a cell culture dish, you can know a lot about how genes are regulated. And in a human, you can study how brain activity across regions underlies cognition. But in a mouse, you kind of have the best of both worlds. Female mice have similar reproductive physiology to humans, where there are phases of high and low estrogen and progesterone. Dr. Kundakovich's lab looked at the difference in anxiety in male and female mice, separating females into two groups based on the phase of their cycles. They showed significant differences in anxiety-like behavior between the two female groups. To understand what might underlie these differences, Dr. Kundakovich's lab looked at the chromatin dynamics in neurons from a brain region known as the ventral hippocampus, which is known to be associated with emotional regulation. These changes in chromatin that they observed across the estrous cycle were linked to changes in neuronal gene expression and their synaptic plasticity. These studies spanned all the way from chromatin to synapses to behavior. Your
0: hosts for this episode were Tori and Claire. Thanks for joining us today. Visit our website, NeuronAir.org, for more resources about today's episode and our guest, Dr. Maria Kundakovich. You can visit her website at www.kundakovichlab.com and find her on Twitter at Lab. You can also follow us on social media at NeuronAirCast. To leave comments on today's episode or to get in touch with us directly, email us at neuronairpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe and review us. See you next time.